This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. For every decade of typography design and magazine publishing, Susanna Licko and Rudy Vanderlands have withstood virulent attacks from an entrenched design establishment as well as from their contemporaries. Throughout all the brouhaha, they still manage to pursue their unique visions, and consequently, together, they have been a significant factor in revolutionizing the industry and cultivating a spirit of exploration in the field of graphic design. Brian Eno once made a clip about the Velvet Underground. He joked that only a few thousand people bought their record, but every one of them went on to form a band. This could apply as well to Emigre. Although the print run of the first issue was 500 copies and its circulation peaked at 7,000 several years ago, its reverberations are still being felt around the world. The magazine that Vanderlands publishes and art directs and the fonts Lego develops for it have stimulated designers to defy and even overthrow entrenched rules and to set new standards. Neither Lego nor Vanderlands set out to transform the face of modern design. They achieve their notoriety rather unconventionally. Bay Area designer Chuck Byrne, who has closely observed their careers since its inception, explains, In the last 50 years or so, making a reputation for yourself was basically a process of winning competitions, getting your work published, and going around pontificating to the world about how great you are. And there are many people that still do that. What drove the establishment crazy was that Rudy and Zuzana totally short-circuited this apprenticeship and became famous simply by designing for this international group of admirers. According to the Emigre website, one of the goals in publishing their magazine is to set Emigre apart from the herd. Rudy and Zuzana write that they want to stay off the beaten path, so to speak, and seek out what lies beyond the obvious to push the limits of design publishing even as they work to survive. And when they both noticed that in the last few years, design publications had suddenly become oversweetened by so-called eye candy, they decided to challenge the imagination, not just tickle the optic nerve and focus on design writing. But today, when it comes to design writing, they are no longer alone. Blogs are the new order and the order is growing. Rudy and Zuzana believe that design blogs have their virtues, but that blogging about design appears to be habit-forming and has become an end in itself with a very rapid-fire, off-the-cuff nature of, blog- of blogging favoring the short, the sweet, the quick, and the now. I actually know about that quite, quite intimately. This phenomenon triggered them, a reflex needed to once again play the role of contrarian. They wanted to do something unique, something no other design magazine had ever done, something that, whatever it turned out to be, would speak to designers in a way that a blog could not. The answer came to them in the form of American Mutt Barks in the Yard by David Barringer. It is the longest Dear Emigre letter they have ever received. The author describes it as ambitious and reckless and impassioned, but that, dear listeners, is putting it mildly. At 34,940 words, it fills the entire 120-page issue of Emigre No. 68. David Barringer's essay started as a simple reply to issues that were spoken about, written about, and debated over in Emigre No. 65 and No. 66, but it exploded into an in-depth critical analysis of design and advertising that only traditional book publishing can accommodate properly. While the emigrate editors were aware of the paradox, after all, there is nothing unique about publishing a traditional book anymore, they had no doubt that David Barringer's essay, Dares to Tread, where few have tread before. And I'd actually like to read you the very letter that David Barringer sent to Rudy, which accompanied his massive missive. Here goes. Dear emigrate, I hope you discover redeeming value in this rude bulk of a submission. I offer it for publication in Emigre. I can imagine it literally nowhere else. 
The best I can say on its behalf is that I am no longer the same designer I was when I began writing it three weeks ago. Emigre 65 and 66 triggered an imaginative Gatling gun, and I'm exhausted and grateful that the shooting is over. Entitled American Mutt Barks in the Yard, the essay is 34,940 words long. It is ambitious and reckless and impassioned. During its composition, I did not intend it as a concerted response to the laments in your publication over the lack of cross-disciplinary, extra-disciplinary writing on graphic design theory. Now that the composition is over, maybe, I still do not know if it represents all what anyone had in mind. Maybe, after all this, it is still only a start. I hope that the essay earns your interest beyond the first personal and poetic sections. The majority consists of critical thinking, vividly expressed. I understand that your time is precious and that my essay presumes to take up a good deal of it. I thank you for your consideration. Sincerely, David Barringer. Well, today, dear listeners, David Barringer is my esteemed guest on Design Matters. Before we start what I hope will be a provocative conversation, let me tell you a little bit more about him. David Barringer is a writer, a designer, and an ex-lawyer. He finished law school but declined a legal career. Instead, he worked as a freelance journalist and wrote for Details, Mademoiselle, Playboy, The American Prospect, and other magazines. For the last eight years, he has made a living writing for a Detroit company that produces books and magazines for unions and auto companies. His interest in design began two years ago when he decided to lay out a magazine for work. He has written four short story collections, and his first novel will be published in, digital, in July. So welcome, David. Thank you for being here on Design Matters. Thank you for having me. So, David, where did you come from when Emigrate 68 first started arriving in people's hands? They were convinced that you were really Steve Heller or that Rudy himself had penned the essay with a pseudonym. How did this all happen? I should have done something like that. <laughs> Seriously, there was some very, very strong conspiracy theories going around that David Barringer did not really exist. So I'm glad, if nothing more, to put that rumor to uh, bed, so to speak. I should have put anonymous. I think that would have <laughs> Then everybody would have thought it was Joe Klein. <laughs> or Marty Phelps. <laughs> So where did you come from? How did how did you even get the impetus, the motivation, the energy, and the passion to put this letter out there? Uh, boy, that's a good question. Um, I don't I don't think anything like this is is really planned. I don't think you sit down and think about it, or you, you probably wouldn't do it. Uh, I didn't know that much about emigrate. Really, I had just started subscribing, and I thought all of emigrate issues were like the recent ones. In other words, with these little paperback uh, books that looked like the literary journals I was familiar with. So I kind of thought, this is something I know about, and you know, I'll, I'll read them for a little while. I, I had no idea about their history or anything like that. So I had only read, uh, I'm looking at my shelf, I don't think I read Rant. Oh, you didn't read Rant, because that's, that's really where I felt a lot of this had come from. There seemed to be, I mean, when Rant first came out, I mean, everybody was blogging over it, arguing over it, debating over it. I mean, one of the very best discussions on Speak Up, the design blog I write for, was, was the discussion about Rant. Right, and I never read it. I read <laughs> the one after it. I, <laughs> okay. I read 65 and 66, which I think those had a lot of reader responses about that issue. Uh, about the rant issue. So I did read those responses to it, but of course I didn't know what anybody was talking about. So uh, I, I think probably ignorance was the most, the biggest uh, reason that I decided to go ahead and do it. And also um, a, a self-consciousness about my own ignorance. And I sort of, sort of think and work through by writing. So other people might read or keep it to themselves, but I ended up writing about it. Oh, well, I mean, you start out in a quite provocative manner. Um, I'd like to talk to you about just how you start. Start the, the I don't know even how you, you refer to this as the issue of the book, the missive, but in any case, you say, I am a self-taught graphic designer, which means I resent the teacher. Why the self-resentment, first of all? Uh, hmm. Well, I, I guess part of it was just kind of a joke uh, in terms of, the paradox of, of saying you're self-taught, uh, it's sort of how do you teach yourself something that you don't know? 
Well, I, I mean, I, I, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Well, I, I, I mean, it seems to me that you really um, have issues with the fact that you're self-taught. There have been many, many designers, I mean, some of the most famous designers, Tibor Kelman among them, that were very proud of the fact that they were self-taught and sort of flying in the face of convention. But I really got the sense, particularly in the first third of the book, that you somehow feel that you have to make something up to compensate for being self-taught. Is that true? Is that, is that something that... Um, you know, I, I think this. I think the writing of this book itself was my attempt to educate myself in order to think through a lot of the issues that other people were thinking about. And for some reason, I couldn't stop thinking about it. Um, other people, if they got worked up about design, would probably design something. Uh, but being a writer who sort of found my way into the design world, I started writing about it. Um, and so I had to work through my own ignorance and what did I want to learn, and a lot of these issues started coming up, and I just decided to start writing about it. And of course, I was also reading and looking and buying books and all that sort of stuff, too. What kind of things were you reading and what kind of books were you buying? Uh, you know, it's interesting, but I never, I, I bought a lot of um, monographs by uh, designers. I, I didn't even, <laughs> before I got into this, I couldn't conceive that they, why they would even exist, but once I saw them, I, I just thought, boy, these were neat and uh, I started collecting them, so I have. Um, well, I can look at my shelf again. Uh, the Sagmeister book, the David Carson book, um, Zero book. Uh, just a ton. I just bought a bunch. Just now, what is your opinion of monographs? Because that's also a very controversial little topic in our little design community about whether or not they're really um, worthwhile or just sort of vanity explorations for the designers that put them out. You know, for the most part, I had no idea who the people were. So for me, the vanity part was, I guess it's, I mean, I come from um, the writing world where, where authors write and publish books. So the fact that you're writing and publishing books didn't seem to me to be itself uh, shameful, I guess, or vain. Uh, it's just kind of what you did. So the more you learn about it, I guess, the more you might say, well, this is really self-promotion. They're trying to get more clients to show off their work. Uh, but being somewhat ignorant of who they were, I, I, I was just looking at the books um, for my own internal um, either curiosity or inspiration or just, just kind of checking them out. It's not like I was an employer who might hire them, and therefore this was a total self-promotion. It was more like I was trying to figure out what was out there. Yeah, you initially... Quick way to do it. And now, was there a favorite? Did you have a favorite among the monographs? Um, boy, I don't think I have that many to, to make a decision about who's monograph. Sagmeister or Carson? <laughs> well, I, I, and I certainly have flipped through a lot more at the at the, at the bookstore that I did not buy, because you're right, they do get uh, expensive quite fast, and you can't be, you know, be a, a designer or, or an employee at work and shelling out a hundred bucks on, a, on every book that you see. Um, I don't. I, I think I liked. Uh, well, you mentioned Sagmeister and Carson. I like each of those, but for very different reasons. Um, I think the Sagmeister's notes were more entertaining, uh, and, and Carson didn't really do that. He just had sort of visual stuff to look at. Uh, but both were somewhat um, inspirational, I would say. And, and I was almost looking at them to say, to tick off a list of, okay, don't do that. <laughs> In other words, people have already done this. They've been there and and uh, they have worked through their own issues and come up with this stuff. Um, so I'm not going to do that. Kind of the way you would read, that I would read, you know, novels that other people have written to say, okay, they've already done that. Uh, I've got to find my own way. Now, you indicated that you offered American Mutt to Rudy uh, because you couldn't imagine it literally anywhere else. Right. What was Rudy's response when he first got it, when he first read it? Uh... I, I don't know. It's sad, and I think his office were about six months, so I have no idea what his first reaction was. I kind of thought I would never hear from him because, uh, I mean, the book itself looks kind of small, but you can imagine the bulk of double space pages that I had sent him. It was, you know, probably 200 pages, mm -hmm. and I'm sure he never seen a manila envelope that big. Um, With a letter to the editor in it. Yeah, and I, <laughs> I didn't, of course, I didn't think of it as a letter to the editor. It was, it was uh, much more... Personal. I was almost talking to myself. So I kind of thought because of the nature of it, he would say this is very 
entertaining and readable, but I, I don't know what to do with it. Now, did you really think that he might publish the entire thing? Did you secretly hope that he would? Oh, sure. Every writer wants their books published, you know, and on the on the shelves. But you know that that hope is hardly ever uh, granted. So. Now, did you get paid for the submission? I did not. I, I got paid in barter. I did not receive any money. Okay. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about. Um, your ideas of being self-taught, because I'm, I'm really, really quite intrigued by some of the things that you write about it. Um, in your description of self-taught, you indicate that to be self-taught is to learn by doing. You talk about how passion motivates learning. And you go on to write, to create, I must know. To know, I must want to know. The end is in sight before the beginning is felt. The sleep of imagination is desire, bounding a canyon, seeking the opposite bank, then backpedaling in midair like a cartoon character struck by a late understanding. I must first build a bridge. Tell me why you feel that way. I, the reason I ask this is at the How conference that we were, that many designers were at last week, um, a lot of speakers talked about that leap of imagination being more subliminal or subconscious, and yours seems to be much, much more conscious and much, much more straightforward. Would that be a correct understanding of what you're trying to say? Uh, I think so. I'm, I'm definitely talking about what goes on in your head. Uh, if you, If I wanted to design something, it's possible that I can see it, but I just don't know how to make it happen. Or you have a, a, a sort of ghostly image of it, but you know you don't know how to use the tools. You don't know how to how to how the printer works. You don't know anything really about how to get there, even though in your head you can come up with the stuff. So being, I guess, being self-taught means you don't know the who has done this before, how they did it, what the tools are, but you just think it would be. In some cases, my mind just can't help but think of it. I mean, you, something occurs to you, um, a book cover, a poster, or whatever, it can be anything, and, and then you just say, boy, I would really love to make that. How the heck do I do that? Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you refer to yourself in, in Emigrate 68 as a mongrel leering at the fat leg of design. Can you elaborate on what that means? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sorry, I had to ask. <laughs> well, I, I thought, I mean, I, I was very self-conscious, obviously, throughout the writing of it, and, and a lot of it is talking to myself. And, of course, when you you sort of make the, the private public, you have a, a self-consciousness about who you are and why you, you know, not only you can speak to yourself, but then you have the second part is why should anybody care? Why should they read this? Why should they listen? Um, who are you? And... Uh, I just was very conscious of that and critical about why I was bothering to do this. Uh, and I was very conscious that I was sending it. I was responding to the people writing in Emigre, and I had been reading all these people, and who the heck am I who've never really done much to start thinking and writing about this? Well, I don't think it's just the thinking and writing, David. I think it's the intensity and the provocation that the thinking and writing has since created in the community. I think that um, given that this is Emma Gray's either last or second to last issue, the fact that this has come out in the way that it has and has sort of, I think, stirred up a lot of issues that people have been either not talking about in quite this way or just outright ignoring, I think puts it right in people's faces in a very, very, you know, in-your-face, take-no-prisoners, you know, stand-up-and-sort-of-shout-out-what-you're-thinking kind of way, which is daring and which is bold and which is very rooty and I think which is very necessary, but it's certainly very different than anything else that has happened in the last couple of years. Hmm. And I And some of that is going to, I mean, that some of that, the meaning of the context of, uh, in which it appeared is up to Rudy. I mean, he, so some of that is his decision to uh, to say what the heck maybe with his last couple issue. Why not? Mm-hmm. Um, well, see, I don't get that sense. I don't think that he was saying, you know, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose, so let's just put it all out there and see what people think. I think that this is a very, I mean, I think I can't imagine it not being a very concerted decision to really put something extremely real, extremely raw, extremely... Um, Daring out in in the last couple of issues. Yeah, and I did, of course I didn't know it was the last couple of issues. I was just writing, you know, in hopes that he would print some of it, you know, in some later issue eventually. I was really surprised it was his second to last. The six, number sixty nine was going to be his last. Now, how did you get the title American Mutt Barks in the Yard? Huh. 
I don't remember. <laughs> you've, got, you've got to have a better answer. I have, that, I have no idea. Uh, I, I wrote it very fast and very intensely, and a lot of that stuff that probably is perceived as daring or, or outspoken it is really just me talking to myself, and I, and I put away all those filters that if you were at a party or had collared, you know, a colleague or something, you would never say this stuff. But as a writer, I mean, I just, I, I, this is what I was thinking about, so it all just came out in that in that fashion. And the only person I was thinking about talking to was uh, myself. Now, did Rudy do a lot of editing, or did it pretty much go to press as is? Uh, it was actually longer. <laughs> you can believe it. It was over 40,000 words when he got it. And oh. Uh, uh, we cut some stuff that uh, didn't need to be there. But he, now, he didn't edit it. In one of the interviews that Jen Simon, my chief researcher, found on your uh, found on you online, you were asked, "What's harder, an 800-word piece or an 8,000-word short story?" Um, and I think that you felt that the 8,000-word short story was much harder. Yet this article is 35,000 words. How did you? And what kept you going? <laughs> so many responses to that one. Most of them. Uh, I'm, I'm tempted to say insanity or something that I just had to work out or my mind was not going to let it go. And I just had to, I mean, it's three pretty intense weeks where my kids went hungry for a few lunches as I'm typing this stuff away and uh, I stayed up late. And, I, and it really was working it out for myself. I needed to know how I felt about this stuff and I, and I needed to work it out. Well, I think that you've done a really wonderful job bringing a lot of thoughts to people that they have been sort of either avoiding or quietly whispering amongst themselves or half-heartedly talking about on the blogs. Um, I think that it's something that is really quite remarkable, and I'm really, really happy to have you on the show. Um, one quick question before uh, we go to break, and actually I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you this question, but, and then we'll go to break and you'll answer it for us, because I want to talk to you about your transition from lawyer to designer. Um, but in the meantime, I want to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I'm Debbie Millman, and my guest today is David Barringer, author of the entire issue of Emigrate Number 68, American Mud Barks in the Yard. We will be right back with our broadcast after these messages. Please don't go away. When business is in your blood and you need answers, get connected. Call 1-866-233-7861. Are you feeling slammed and suckered in today's stock market? If so, then you need to tune in to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel. Every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, Jordan Kimmel will train you in what you can do to beat up the big boys on Wall Street, as well as share his secrets to success so that you can buy and sell like a profit-pumping pro. Grab the bull market by the horns and listen to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time right here on the bottom line of business talk, Voice America Business. Business talk is all we do. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Achieve total wealth management. Listen to Three-Dimensional Wealth with Roy Diefendorf every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 Eastern on Business America Radio. Three-Dimensional Wealth is a show dedicated to teaching you a values-based approach to comprehensive total wealth management through practical strategies and expert advice. Take your first step down the road of financial independence. Listen to Three-Dimensional Wealth with Roy Diefendorf Mondays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 Eastern, here on the bottom line in business talk, businessamericaradio.com. The bottom line in business talk. Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 1-866-233-7861. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.32 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, live from the Empire State Building in New York City. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the esteemed David Barringer, author of the entire issue of Emigrant Number 68, American Mutt, Barks in the Yard. If you'd like to join our conversation or if you have a question for David or myself, please call 1-866-233-7861. 
David, before the break, I asked you to um, think about the question that I had for you, which was, how did you take the path from lawyer to designer? Um, I, the, I never actually intended to be a designer. It just sort of started to happen. I, at, after law school, or I should say during law school, I was uh, writing for magazines. Uh, in, in fact, before law school, I wanted to be a writer. I just didn't know how to earn a living at it. So like many writers, I went to law school. Um, and I kind of waited for law to grab me and say, this is where you need to go, and it never did. So after law school, I continued to write and started to write for legal magazines uh, and some other kind of magazines. And I think as it happened, it was very uh, tough. It was, um, I mean, there's no money in, in freelancing or very little. It's hard to make a living at it. And yet I kind of stuck with it even when we had uh, little kids and all that. And, and basically what happened is uh, I think if you swim in the same waters long enough, somebody's bound to notice or uh, a connection will happen. So that's what happened. Was there's a series of weird connections. And I ended up uh, freelancing for uh, a corporate publication and then eventually came to be employed by them. And what corporate co uh, publication is that? I think that's what inquiring minds really want to know. Where does David Barringer work? <laughs> well, I, it, it's such an internal thing. I, I also don't r really like to talk about it because it really, my name doesn't appear anywhere on any of it. Uh, you know, designers don't uh, really get that kind of recognition, I think, and oftentimes you don't want it because uh, it's not your stuff. Um, but I work in the auto industry in Detroit. Uh, you will often be touched by the auto industry in ways you have no idea. So eventually you will find your, yourself working for them in one way or another. So our vendor, uh, or the, I should say the company I work for, is a, a vendor, and we do print work and all sorts of stuff for uh, the big three and for unions and whatnot. So it was a magazine and continues to be a magazine for Ford. Okay. Interesting. So then we'll be able to assess your work as well. Um, <laughs> one of the quotes that I really liked uh, from, from the book, from the issue, is um, when you're talking about what you love about design. And you say, this is what I love about design. Anything's fair game. Photography, collage, sketches, type. I can sledgehammer an old TV if I want to. I can paint my penis blue. I can write a short story to fit the bookmark I am designing. Whatever. Now, end quote. So, I think this actually also sounds like you could be describing art. Yet as designers, I know that we often feel and write about uh, experiencing the possibility that we are actually second-class citizens in the world of design and fine art. Um, then again, when talking about scrapbooking, for example, as in a recent piece on the blog Design Observer, scrapbookers went nuts when they felt that they were being slighted for being somehow inferior to graphic designers. So there's this little ladder of acceptability in our community. Um, do you really feel that in graphic design anything is fair game? Um, yeah, pretty much. I mean, I, I, don't, I think you, you very quickly get into moral questions. Uh, like, for example? Well, like starting to mutilate yourself for graphic design, uh, which, you know, brings up one of the people we mentioned before. Yes, yeah, exactly. Far you take, uh, yeah, th there's all sorts of boundaries you can push. I think the question is whether they're real or not or whether they're, uh, um, you know, illusory. They're, they're pictures of something as opposed to, you know, the, the, gra the graphic design equivalent of a snuff film or something like that. So I think right. there are limits. Well, do you feel like Zagmeister's... Um Posters, uh, the poster where he did the uh, engraving on his body, is pushing the limits or in any way sort of inappropriate? No, I, I don't think he, he went far as as far as a, as a Maplethorpe photo, so I think, you know, I don't think he went. I think it's fine. I don't have any problem with it. Now, um, aside from the I can paint my penis blue comment, I noticed that you equate design and sex quite a lot. And here's another great and quite provocative quote. Um, through it all to the end, it is so goddamn satisfying. It's like days of foreplay leading up to the big finish, the orgasm, the creation, the big bang, my finished design, my little insect bug of my loins. Um, one word, wow. <laughs> I, I think that's kind of a... Um an intern, a kind of an expression of the way artists feel or creators feel or writers feel about what they've made. It's their kid. It's their, you know, their little baby. And so they, they often have a, an affectionate or proud feeling about what they've done. Okay. 
procreative as well as creative. Oh, I see. I get it. Okay. Um, David, we have a caller. We actually have somebody uh, named David from L.A. David from L.A., welcome to Design Matters. Hello. How are you, David Berenger? <laughs> hey, David. How are you? Fine, thank you. Am I assuming these two Davids know each other? I know David Berenger, yes. I, I was his editor at Details Magazine. Oh, okay. Well, welcome to Design Matters. Do you have a question Dave? for David? Did he fall on the floor? David, do you have a question for David? Or are you just I, calling in to, to no, give show no, your no. support? No, no, no. I have a question for him. Um, my question is this. Um, inasmuch as design is sometimes defined by its limitations or the criterion that are set um, by a client as opposed to art, which is um, dictated only by the, uh, the imagination. So these days, uh, obviously not in the days when people painted for kings and, and queens, um, what to you is the, you know, the best expression of, of design and do you think it has become... I mean, what are successful examples of design based on limitations that you see out there in the marketplace? And also, do you feel that design is becoming fashion in some ways? Hmm. Um, I guess that's a good question. I, I often think about design in terms that is uh, very personal and, and kind of broad. In other words... There's a lot of client-based work that people do, and half the time, that's not really uh, – that doesn't occupy my mind in terms of what are the issues I, I want to think about. In other words, I can be my own client. I can come up with my own stuff, design my own books. Uh, you know, there's no client except for myself, and in a way that's akin to being a writer who writes only for themselves. In other words, you're not – imposing, or you're not allowing somebody else to impose the limitations, you have to do that job yourself uh, and come up with what are the rules and what are the conditions under which you're going to uh, create. Um, examples of it out there, I think if you wanted to, I think it's going to be very difficult to, to differentiate at certain points what is design and what is art. There are, there are several people now who are designers who are coming out with books and they're being published as books. They're not monographs, but they... Um, in fact, I think somebody... Is it Nicholas Blackman who's going to be your guest in a couple... Yes, yeah, so. two, uh, two, two shows from now. Right, so there's people like that who are putting books out there that uh, they're designers, but the books are not for a client. They're their own... They're using their, their design skills and tools and, uh, and thought processes towards something that has no client. Um, and that might be called art. It might just be called publishing or making a book. Um, as far as whether it's becoming fashion, uh, well, that's a good question. I guess I don't feel, other than as a consumer, I, I could respond as a consumer, but not really as a critic or a designer. As a consumer, everything um, we look at can be chosen as a kind of lifestyle accessory. Do I buy this book because it makes me look smart or... Uh, hang this poster on my wall uh, for this or that reason. I think we make a lot of decisions like that. Well, I think we're actually living in a day and age um, when now more than ever before, design is now expressing our personal affiliations, our belief systems, every single thing that we put on our bodies, put um, in our mouths, wear on our feet, etc., all expresses in some way or another, at least for that moment in time, who we are. And there's really never been a time in our culture where this was so incredibly pervasive and just almost universal. Um, I think that we're living in, in a time right now that is very much a design economy, a design-led economy, when there's very little to differentiate products one from another anymore the way that the consumer products manufacturers are trying to do that now is via design. I mean, when can you ever remember in a 24-month period of time that the word design was on the cover of Newsweek, of Time, of Fast Company, of Business 2.0? I mean, and it's an extraordinary exposure for what we do, but it is also in many ways, I think, raising a lot of questions about whether design is more about substance or whether it's only about style or whether, as, as Virginia Postrel would say, it's a little bit of both. Hmm. 
could also be that that word is being co-opted to make it to make the same old stuff look uh, cool or elite or um, you know calling something uh, suggesting that everything has been so well thought out and intentional, uh, which is really I think you're going almost to the basic definition of design is, is to intend to make something or to plan, uh, which is, is such a broad category if every could encompass everything. Everything is intended to be uh, a certain way. Um, but I, it, we're going to get very quickly out of, <laughs> of where I feel comfortable talking as a designer and into just criticizing uh, uh, consumerism or, you know, shopping as a way of life and uh, buying things as a way to, to become someone. Well, I just think as designers we have a tremendous responsibility in certainly monitoring and contributing to or not contributing to that process, um, you know, especially somebody like me that primarily works in consumer branding, um, you know, this is something that I have to really factor into my practice every single day. Um, and I think that you touch upon some of those other topics uh, in in Emigre 68. I mean, you say that you think that design is ultimately an expression of hope. I'd like to talk to you more about why you feel that way. Why, why do you feel like it is such an optimistic uh, discipline? I think it can be. I think you can um, take control of it to do things that you want to do. And I think in a certain sense, if your job is, um, I mean, jobs almost by definition can't give you everything you want. And so one way to uh, leave, the, you know, come home at the end of the day and look at something else to do that you want to do and want to express design, uh, whether it's, you know, a pad. Oh, hello? Hello. I think we're having some technical difficulties. I wonder if that's uh, David. Okay, we're back. Yes. Okay. Lots of technical, technical difficulties today. Way on the phone. Um, I guess David was like, hey, if they're not going to talk to me, I'm just going to hang up. <laughs> yeah, that's another for you. <laughs> Surprised you hung on so long. Um, what the heck was I talking about? We were talking about design as an expression of hope or optimism. Right. I, I, I almost think in some sense that for people who know in the visual arts that they're not going to be an artist, like myself. There's just no, it's just not in my mentality. I didn't go to school for it. I never, you know, I have a sketchbook, you know, you buy a sketchbook and you look at it and it's empty, you know, as empty as the day I bought it. But there's something about design that is somehow encouraging and has something to do for me personally with writing and making books, which is which is where I like to, to work and, and what I like to think about. So I can have it, make it have personal meaning for me out of what I'm already doing and, and that's kind of how I slipped into it. And for me, it's, it, it coincides with the hope that I find uh, just to sit down and write. Uh, I can do the same thing when I design. Oh, well, that's a wonderful um, place to pause for a few seconds as we go to break. I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I'm Debbie Millman, and my guest today is David Barringer, author of the entire issue of Emigre Number 68, American Mutt Barks in the Art. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages. Please don't go away. More and more people are starting their day with informative, focused business talk. Top experts. Today's business issues. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. What stock should I buy? When is it time to sell? Where do I turn for honest advice on my portfolio? For the answers to these questions, tune in to Trading in Today's Markets with Oliver Velez and Greg Capra every Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time. On the show, Oliver, Greg, and their guests will discuss the daily going-ons of Wall Street, as well as give you tips on how to identify the hottest sectors and trends in the market. Improve your portfolio. Listen to Trading in Today's Markets with Oliver Velez and Greg Capra. Broadcast live on Business America Radio every Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Business talk is all we do. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Are your accounts stuck in bumper-to-bumper traffic? Are your finances flowing at two miles an hour? It's time to crank your cash into high gear by tuning in to Making Sense of Financial Nonsense with Bullseye Bruce Horowitz. Every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time, Bullseye Bruce will give you no-nonsense, common-sense financial advice that anyone can understand, as well as bring you clarity on some of the most complex and confusing financial issues today. 
So get out of that traffic jam and listen to Making Sense of Financial Nonsense every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. Are you interested in the immigration laws that are increasingly affecting the way we all live? Then you need to tune in to Learner on Immigration every Wednesday, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on Business America Radio. Host Brian Lerner, a certified specialist in immigration and nationality law, will give you updates on current immigration laws and allow you to call in and have your questions answered. The immigration policies of this country affect us all. Find out how on Learner on Immigration with certified specialist Brian Lerner. Heard every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line in Business Talk, BusinessAmericaRadio.com. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. Welcome back to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you would like to be a caller on the show, dial toll-free at 1-866-233-7861. Once again, that's 1-866-233-7861. And now, back to the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.48 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, live from the Empire State Building in New York City, where it is a very beautiful day in Manhattan. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is David Barringer, author of the entire issue of Emigre 68, American Mutt Barks in the Yard. And, David, we have a caller. We have Joe from New York. Joe, thank you for calling to my matters. Hello. Hello. How are you guys doing? I think we're doing pretty well, aside from the little bit of technical difficulties we've been having. Just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dave, I have a question for you. I've been hearing a lot of things about the positive side of design and how design can help and how it's exciting and related to sex a lot. I just wanted to know if there was ever a time when design was being used the wrong way, if there was ever a moment where you felt like this wasn't right, maybe in your work or somewhere else that you've seen it in the market. Hmm, that's a good question. Uh, that is a good question. It's a, it's a very broad question because yeah, yes. um, there's different ways you could – I mean, as a consumer, you could say, boy, this thing is designed dumb. You know, this isn't working. Uh, it's ugly or – I'm not going to buy it, or I can't read it, or anything like that. So it's almost a, a utilitarian complaint that it's not useful, or an aesthetic one that, it, that you don't like the look of it. But that's almost, in some cases, unless it's you know breaking the law or uh, uh, violating some sort of consumer warranty, the only cause for complaint is almost a, a personal one that you're going to buy something else. That's you know your right as a consumer to look elsewhere, to uh, spend your money elsewhere, and to uh, you know buy a competing product or better designed, whatever. Um, I, I guess, uh, there are some little... examples where I guess you might be, this is a funny anecdote that somebody told me where uh, I think for personal belief where you might say you're a vegetarian or you're uh, or something like that so you don't now design menus that have meat on them. <laughs> somebody, my brother was telling me about this. So if you're a designer, you don't take jobs now where you have to, to do that even though you're just designing the menu. You could say, because of my beliefs, uh, I don't want anything to do with it. Well, I know. It's really funny. I was having this conversation with with uh, a number of people on the American Institute of Graphic Arts board last night. We had a meeting, and we were talking about would we do this or would we do that, and really hearkening back to a lot of Milton Glaser's 12 Steps on the Path to Hell. Um, and one of uh, the AIJ board members said, well, I would never work for the Republican Party. And, you know, I think that's really interesting if, if we're making – uh, decisions about what we would or wouldn't do based on personal beliefs, I think that in many ways that's all we really have to hold on to in terms of what is you know true and meaningful to us. But one only needs to look back at history and say, well, you know, the swastika was a really powerful piece of graphic design and used in, in a very, very destructive way. And I think that some of the images that I saw coming out of 9-11 where people were creating cellular imagery for cell phones of planes crashing into buildings to communicate that this had happened around the world, I think that um, it's it's quite frightening what the visual image can do to either provoke us, to motivate us, to inspire us, or to brainwash us. I mean, where do you draw that line? How do you, how do you tell where it's healthy and then unhealthy? 
I think almost, I, I think that's a good point. I, I'm not so sure I can contribute to it. My, my brain is working on another side of it, which is um, as a designer, you, you essentially don't have ultimate responsibility for what gets put out there when you are doing client work. So you have to say, in what sense uh, is this you and your message, and in what sense is it, do you blame the client? In other words, you might design the logo or a brochure or a poster or some sort of campaign of whatever, but it isn't, you know, the David Berenger campaign or the Debbie Millman campaign. It's the company's campaign or your client's campaign. Um, you can do work, and I've had experience with this, that you're not happy with, uh, and that even if it's nothing technically wrong with it, it's just bad or it's a message you don't agree with, mm-hmm. um, you, could, you could decline the job I guess, or, or bail out at a certain point if it's taking a direction you don't like. But I have not had a job like that yet where I bailed out. You just sort of take the check and, and then go home and try and do something uh, better. But I think the, the power relationship is very difficult as a designer, and I, and I think it's tough if you're working for uh, corporations and, and big clients who can afford to pay you to say, to, to turn your back on it and go home and, and work for yourself, which... I guess I straddle the line because I do a lot of that. I just don't do that big work. Uh, and that power relationship may may dictate some of that. Well, I think, again, it's a, it's a lot about personal decisions. I know in my practice there are people that have no issue, for example, working on tobacco packaging and others that are here that feel that it's absolutely repugnant to do something like that and would never ever be able to contribute to something of that nature. And then also, again, back at the How Conference these past couple of days, I know Stefan Sagmeister was talking about, you know, working with a client and saying, look, if you just don't do it like this, then you can find somebody else to do it. And I think that, well, it takes a lot of balls, but I also think it takes quite a lot of fame to be able to get away with that. Um, I don't think um, until you reach a certain position, a certain stature in your practice that, you know, you could sort of throw around a threat like that and have them even care unless it's something that is really, you know, making a big difference. Yeah, it would be nice to turn down all that stuff. That's the kind of, I suppose, in the movie version of the of the designer, that's what happens. You have your moment of truth, and do you, do you stick it out and cast the check, or do you do you walk away? Um, I, I wonder how many people get the choice, but uh, I mean, get the, uh, the find themselves in that circumstance. I, I think almost a more difficult question is the um, the decision to be to work like that at all uh, if you're going to have those kind of big clients. Because obviously, if you're if you're a designer, you're giving up. Uh, by definition, your autonomy to make a lot of the decisions. And some people are comfortable with it, uh, no matter what the circumstance, because they can divorce themselves from it uh, and say, you know, it's not my vision, but I'm making it happen. Uh, or some people are just not comfortable. They, they really identify with their work, and they say, I, you know, this is too much of me, and I, this is not me, and therefore I can't do it. Uh, and I, part of that, I think I talk about in the book, where, you, where your personality becomes uh, and has a, has a pretty strong dependence on the work that you do. Uh, and so the work that you do often in a, in a philosophical and psychological sense makes you. Uh, and saying no to those kinds of jobs is saying yes to a different kind of person that you want to be. Absolutely. That's when we take our stance. Um, thank you, Joe. Thank you for calling into Design Matters. Thank you. Um, David, something else that I want to ask you about, you know, I think is a nice segue um, from the conversation that we're having into this particular topic is, you say that meritocracy is dead. What do you mean by that? Uh, well, um, that it's not a, an original claim, <laughs> and it's, it's, that's why I kind of said it quickly and moved on. Uh, I bet you'd guess I wouldn't catch on. <laughs> well, I mean, it's as old as the hundred uh, uh, revolution and all that stuff, um, where where it isn't the uh, measure of your capacity or your achievements. It's really about who you know. Uh, and there's who I know. My daughter knocking at the door. At any rate, um, it. it in today's world, it's about networking and making friends and, and uh, uh, getting out there. And this has a relevance for me since I work alone so often. I just don't do that. And so I'm very conscious of if I ever struck out on my own, you've really got to, um, you know, you have a sort of baseline level of uh, capabilities. But you could have the, you could be the best designer in the world and sit at home twiddling your thumbs all day. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not. Nobody's going to give you an award for that or give you a job for that. You've got to go out and hit some lunches and meet some people and you know move to a big city. I mean, I don't know, but you but you can't uh, you can't be alone. Well, I think you're obviously doing something right with a number of books in the market. A book coming out in July. What is the name of the book coming out in July? In July, it's my first novel. It's called Johnny Red. And what is it about? Uh, it's a it's a novel, uh, a kind of an adventure story and a love story put together, and uh, it's very autobiographical. It's from the point of view of a rooster. Really? Yeah. And how did you come upon that idea? <laughs> I don't know. Another <laughs> another American mutt hit on the side of the head where I just had to had an idea and had to follow it through, and, and I have followed this idea for almost eight years. Uh, this was one of the first things I wrote, and I've been editing it on for years and years, and it's just... It is a labor of love, but it is uh, certainly not anything that a focus group or a market-tested uh, thing would have suggested I do. But what you, know, you do what you got to do. Now, you also, in addition to your books, you also do these really interesting little kits that I noticed on your website. Can you tell us about a few of those? Sure. This is a, a function of uh, kind of recklessness. You sort of have an idea and say, what the heck, I'll, I'll give it a shot. So the first uh, idea, I think my mom and I were talking, and uh, we came up with this idea for the dead bug funeral kit. <laughs> and we had the idea that, yeah, I, I must have read something where in Japan and Thailand, you know, people keep pet cockroaches. Uh, and, of course, people keep butterflies and praying mantises. And I just thought it would be funny to have uh, a funeral kit for them. You know, there are pet cemeteries and all this stuff for dogs and cats and things, but nobody really talks about bugs. So I, I came up with this idea to write poems that were eulogies uh, as if kids were giving eulogizing their dead bugs. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, for, for our listeners that are interested, uh, you can go to David Barringer's website and see all of these wonderful kits, all of his wonderful books, as well as the ability to order your own issue of Emigrant 68. Um, David, thank you so much for being on the show today. We've unfortunately come to the end of our broadcast, and I'd like to thank you for joining me. I'd also like to thank the people at Voice America Business, my incredible producer, Lisa Grant, and my chief researcher, Jen Simon. Join me next week for our fourth show in our second season. My guests are Jake Worst and Alistair Gordon. Jake is the director of a documentary um, called Leisurama, and Alistair Gordon is a writer of a very wonderful book called Beach Houses, Andrew Geller. They will be joining me next week to talk about Jake's documentary, a phenomenal documentary called Leisurama about the first branded community in America located in Montauk, New York. So thank you, listeners, and remember, we can talk about making a difference, or we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business.